I would have been convinced that I was right, and I would have been able to make a case that I was right, and I would have been able to show you in print where I was right, and to make my point about even higher education, I was wrong. And I'll tell you what cracked it completely open. I had a pretty good understanding of this when I started TSP. I had started working with you know multimillionaires by the time I started TSP. I had access to the type of information that the average person will never have access to at that point. So I was closer. But you know what really cracked it for me? Cryptocurrency. And not as soon as I heard, I wish I, one of the, I, wish I was one. I wish I was one of those people that in about 2011 when Bitcoin first came out would have went, holy shit, and I would have bought like a thousand Bitcoin for like, oh, I don't know, ten bucks. I, I really wish. If a hundred, who cares? A thousand. I, I, you know, if you could go back in time, wouldn't you pay a dollar of Bitcoin when it traded under a dollar for it? Yeah, I didn't. I resisted it because it didn't make sense to me. But enough people told me about it that I eventually examined it and understood it. And, and then I realized what a genius, whoever he, he or she or they were, Satoshi Nakamoto was. Cryptocurrency, the original creation of true cryptocurrency in the form of Bitcoin, required an understanding of money that I'm going to try to give you today. Even if you never touch cryptocurrency, it won't matter. And I'm going to tell you, you're going to find out some things about money today that are going to sound like, I don't value money. And that's not the case. But all money is worthless in many ways. All things that we've ever used as money are basically worthless. So what is money? Hold tight. We'll talk about it right when we break into the main subject today. However, I want to start out by reminding you that when you're going to spend your money, one way you can do that effectively and, and, and support the things you like is to do business with my sponsors. You listen to this show, hey, if you need something, and let's say it's an herbal medication or a raw herb or something, why not go to Western Botanicals first? See if they have it. If it's legal and herbal, I guess with the I always say that about them. And then, you know, we had federal legalization of, of, uh, of like hemp. And CBD and all that, that's the one thing they, they don't touch it. I don't know why, but they won't. Randy over there told me that they're just not going to go there. Uh, other than that, if it's herbal and legal in the United States, you'll find it there. It's either organically grown or wild crafted. And it is the place to get your herbal remedies and your whole herbs and all the things you might need to make your own herbal concoctions, including information. And if you need help and you pick the phone up and you call them, you will talk to real people that really care about you that will help you with your needs, not some call center you know, in Shanghai or New Delhi. These, these folks are all right at the home office, which is in Utah, right here in the United States. Check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. You know, we're going to talk a lot about liberty today in a roundabout way because money and liberty do go hand in hand. And money is one of the main things that allow for freedom and one of the main things that allow for the control of human beings as well. We'll get into that today. Um, but Free State Project believes in liberty in our lifetime. And to drag the state of New Hampshire, kicking and screaming against its will if necessary, towards liberty. It doesn't mean they get everything right. It doesn't mean there's no flaws with anything. But I'll tell you what, they are an incredible people to be a group of people to be around. And if you go to fsp.org forward slash visit NH for Visit New Hampshire, you learn how to take a vacation to New Hampshire. Have really cool people kind of hook you up with things locally. And you know, just take a vacation and see if New Hampshire is right for you. Check it out today, fsp.org. And if you want to know more about visiting New Hampshire, slash visit NH. With that, let's start digging into this. And uh, let's start out with a question that, again, most people cannot answer. And if you think about it, most people 
have never been even taught, even if incorrectly, the answer to this question. Did you ever, did you ever sit down when you were a kid in school to take a test or a quiz and see the question, what is money? Either an essay, fill in the blank, you know, multiple choice. Have you, did you ever even have that question asked to you in school? I'm sure some of you had teachers talk about money, but did they tell you what money was? Did they explain it? I bet they didn't. So, one of the people I really respect in this world is a gentleman named Vin Armani. Great dude, personal friend, really loves what he does. But he even gets tied up in this. Because this is what he said about cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency isn't money, it's a ledger of accounting. When I heard him say that, I went, wow. Wow, man, if you can get this wrong, anybody can. All money is a ledger of accounting. All money... All money is, is a ledger of accounting. It is a symbol for the exchange of value, primarily in the form of energy or embodied energy between individuals so that books can be square at the end of the day. It is a ledger of accounting, and it doesn't matter what it is. And people would say, well, you know, saying Bitcoin's a ledger of accounting or any cryptocurrency is a ledger of accounting makes sense because you can go look at the ledger. You can go see the ledger. That's what the blockchain is. The blockchain is literally a ledger. It makes sure that this one Bitcoin that I've sent to you or this one you know, Litecoin that I've sent to you or this one Polkadot or whatever the hell it is that I've sent to you is authentic and it's real and it's not counterfeitable. And it says it went from Jack to Tony and Tony has it now. And that means that whatever we've exchanged in return for that one unit or partial unit has been accounted for. So accounting means we're accounting for exchange. Okay. So, so how does that work with gold? We take the reason we use gold for money is because it's relatively rare compared to other things. It's relatively easy to refine, but difficult to extract from the ground. And therefore, it has a controlled supply and a cap in totality, how much of it there will ever be. But it's once it's refined, it's easy to break it up into ounces or quarter ounces or half ounces, to stamp a picture on it. It's a relatively soft metal. It works really well as money, as a ledger of accounting. And, and you, Just because you can't go look at the ledger doesn't mean there's not a ledger. The ledger is the, 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 the reality that there is X amount of total refined, exchangeable, fungible gold in the world. There's that total amount. And when you have a gold coin, let's say a tenth of an ounce of gold, that is a unit from the totality of the supply, which makes it a ledger. You don't have to be able to go look at it written down somewhere. When I hand you the piece of gold... And you look at it, and you have. Uh, you can, we can also determine if gold is legitimate or not. We can determine what, how many carats it is. We can determine how much it weighs. We can look at it, and we can examine it, and we can identify that this really is a piece of gold. So it can't be counterfeited. That becomes the ledger. That becomes the ledger. You know, and I know, that I gave you a tenth of an ounce of gold. And we have decided on a value of that, whether it's based on our perception or whether it's based on, or because we relied on some third party like an exchange to provide us with an exchange rate and say, you know, 
X amount of gold is equal to Y amount of dollars or pounds or euros or pesos or yen or won or whatever, right? Like, one way or another, we have determined a value between us, and when I handed you that gold, and let's say what you did for me was you worked on my car and you gave me X hours of labor on my car, we have squared the deal. You understand? I mean, that's how simple this is. We have squared the deal. We have used a portable, non-auditable ledger. Portable and non-auditable allows it to be what? Anonymous. We have made an anonymous, untraceable agreement for the exchange of a chunk of metal for a chunk of labor. And it's functioned as a ledger. Again, just because you can't go look at that ledger doesn't mean it's not a ledger. It's a ledger in our minds. And that's what money is. Money is a ledger. It's a ledger. One way or another, if it's a tally stick, it's a ledger. It's a ledger. And it's a ledger that is agreed upon collectively. And without the agreement, the collective agreement, that this is okay to use as a ledger, it is valueless. It is valueless. And I'll explain to you how gold is worth almost nothing in reality. When we get to that, let's move up though. To, I want to also talk to you about how money obeys the laws of energy. And this is really simple to understand without even getting into the laws of energy. Money is truly a ledger of accounting that is collectively agreed upon that functions as a symbol for the exchange of energy. That's what it is. No matter what you're exchanging, there's energy in the equation. I don't care if it's a fully natural system. Let's say that a tree grows all by itself in nature, and you happen to own the ground that tree is on, and you sell me the tree. And you've done nothing to the tree. You've never touched the tree. No human hand has ever even laid a finger on the tree, and I'm primarily buying it because I value the timber in that tree. You're telling me that timber is not embodied energy? It came from the sun. It came from the nutrients of the earth. Everything has its roots in energy. If you think about cryptocurrency, what gives it value is energy. We'll get to that later. But no matter what we're exchanging, there's energy in the equation. If you make a thing, there was energy in the production of the materials, whether they're natural, man-made, doesn't matter. And there was energy in the assemblage of it, and there was energy in the delivery of it. Now, I'm going to give you money for that thing. That money didn't just grow out of my ass. And even if it did, it would probably take energy for it to happen. I did something somewhere else that expended energy. And now we are exchanging energy. And we're using a representation we call money, which is a system of accounting to balance our books between each other. That's it. And without the collective agreement, if you don't have the collective agreement, money becomes valueless almost overnight. And people can tell you it's inflation, it's money printing, whatever. Those are reasons the confidence is lost. They're not the actual reason for the failure. Every currency that's ever failed, failed when people decided collectively, we no longer value this as a ledger of accounting between each other. Because think of why we made this. So let's say that I have a farm and I produce duck eggs, because I do. And you have a farm 
and you one of the crops you grow is potatoes, and you need some duck eggs. So you come to me and say, Jack, I want some duck eggs. And I say to you, okay, what do you got? And you say, I have potatoes. And I say, I'm, I'm keto, I don't eat potatoes. You say, that's really all I have in surplus right now. See the problem? Like, we do learn this in economics class, even in, like, junior high. If you take a junior high economics class, they teach you this. That's where barter falls apart. Barter only works when you and I have things that at the same time we want to equally value for exchange. But Billy down the road loves potatoes. So Billy buys your potatoes, and he gives you money, which is a ledger of accounting, read them on with collective agreement, and then you exchange that to me. And I'll explain real easy how easy it is to understand the collective agreement is necessary. Bitcoin is worth a lot of money right now. But there are people who wouldn't take it. If they won't take it, it has no value in our exchange between each other. I must fund it into something else, let's say dollars, to buy something. I paid for part of my car I bought last year with cryptocurrency. Dodge would not take cryptocurrency. So I had to execute a trade, turn it into fiat dollars, which they were happy to take. They, they agreed to take that. There's ways we're going to be working around that that's beyond what we want to get into today. I want to keep this fundamental. But let's talk about gold, because gold's the one, the gold bugs, man. Well, gold, it's never been worthless. Oh, yeah? Okay. Before we had a banking system, it was totally worthless. Nobody gave a shit. It was something that people found and made trinkets out of and little jewelry and stuff like that. It really had no real value. When we first came to North America as Europeans... And one of the things we sought was gold. And we found tribes that had used gold to make stuff and all. They didn't really understand why it was so important to us. It didn't really make sense to them. They saw it as a, as a construction material to make, you know, stuff. They didn't really see it as, as like, worth exchanging your life for. Right? And that makes me realize I almost forgot our quote of the day again today. So let's pause there for a second. This would be a good time to bring the quote in anyway. Uh, Voltaire said one time, do not think money does everything or you're going to, to end up doing everything for money. When, when you're living a tribal life in an untamed wilderness, trust me, a sack of venison is worth more than an ounce of gold to you. Unless there is a system of commerce that will let you buy a sack of ven uh, venison for the lump of gold. Until we created this method of accounting that we decided to use this specific thing for, the gold really had no real value. Again, it had some function, some form, some things you could do. But let me put it to you this way. This is what started this. It was a quote, a, a, a meme that came out today that I saw today. And it was a picture of a $100 bill and a $100 Monopoly bill. And it said, the only thing that makes the one more valuable than the other is that you believe it. And I said, that is wrong. It is not that you believe it. It's that we collectively believe it. Because try this little experiment. Go get yourself some Monopoly money and believe. Pray, meditate, do whatever you have to to where you really believe. Where if they put you on a lie detector and said, is this a $100 bill that's worth $100? You would say yes and pass completely commit to the crazy task of believing it and get it done. Go try to spend it. Now, here's the interesting thing. I can know it's bullshit, but if you believe it, you'll take it. 
You see how that works, right? It's this collective agreement. So now let's imagine you and, uh, I don't know, 20 other people are going to be stranded on a desert island for 20 years. 20 people, 20 years, desert island. You guys, when you can have, you're, the, you're, you're designated the leader of the group. I will give you a pound of gold, or I will give you a completely stuffed and stacked shipping container that has food that's storable and long-term, fishing gear, tools, building materials, fire-making stuff, everything you would need to create your own little village. But let's say that the financial value of that, if you went and bought it at Home Depot and had it delivered to your house, was 25% the value of the gold that you had been offered. But you're fixing to go, and you're going to have 20 other people. You're fixing to go live on a deserted island with no support for 20 years. Which one are you going to take? Which one are you going to take? And you know the answer. You're either insane or you know the answer. If gold has so much intrinsic value, why doesn't it subsist with that value outside of this artificial world that we've created? It's because it doesn't. It doesn't have intrinsic value. Not of the level that we claim that it does. It has been commoditized. It has been hoarded. Its supply has become shorter. And therefore, because of a collective agreement that it has value, it has become more valuable in our world. But tomorrow morning, if they shut off all the lights, and you have to worry about eating... How long do you think it is before people go, you know, I don't really need more gold. I need more food. And to make it abundantly clear, you do the, the island experiment, and it becomes worthless. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Jack, you're big on cryptocurrency. Isn't this true about cryptocurrency? Yes. Yes, it is. You would say, well, on the island, you'll have no access to the Internet. Okay. Even if I did, you get Wi-Fi on your deserted island. But no one's going to bring you anything. Your Bitcoin's worthless, isn't it? I guess on year 21, when you get off the island, if you survive that long, it becomes worth money. But if I was going to put you on the island, I gave you the same test. Jack, you can have, you can have, you know, half a million dollars in Bitcoin or a hundred thousand dollars in supplies. I don't take the supplies. Because I'm going to need them. That said, when it comes to true intrinsic value in the world we do live in, not the deserted island, in many ways, the highest intrinsic value that we have right now, in the form of money, is cryptocurrency. Because it can do something that no other form of money can. It can, 24-7, 365, make exchanges possible around the world for almost no cost. I know, I know, like Bitcoin fees are high. There's ways around that. There's a new technology that I just heard about, so I don't want to talk too much about it, called Strike. I think it's called Strike. I listened to a, a, a podcast that just kind of showed up my feed yesterday. And it would allow you to send money for no cost whatsoever anywhere in the world, any time of day. Christmas morning, 6 a.m., no problem. Can you do that with the banking system? The answer is no. Where the other person will immediately have it in their own home? No. And it can be in dollars. You can send it in dollars using the Bitcoin network, and the person over in Japan can get yen in seconds. For free. Now. Immediately. And we could use a cryptocurrency that is a better sending cryptocurrency like Litecoin. And essentially do the same thing. It'll take a few seconds, but it's there for very, very low fees. So 
since we know it can't be counterfeited, since we know it is an effective ledger, since we know it does square the books at the end of the day, and since I can use it, if Christmas morning falls on a Sunday at 3 o'clock in the morning and I need to send you money in the Philippines, I can send it with cryptocurrency and you will have it within a minute. Is it not more intrinsically valuable as a ledger of accounting than fiat currency? Because you can't do it with fiat currency. You can't do it with fiat currency. Think of how many hurdles you have to jump through to wire money internationally. And you can do it with a dollar or a hundred million dollars. So it has an incredible intrinsic value, but it's still intrinsically, when people say it's intrinsically worthless, to a large degree they're correct. Put somebody on a desert island and offer them cryptocurrency. You know what they can do with it? Absolutely F all nothing. But what, what, is, what, what else is there that you don't get that same answer? You want silver on a desert island? I guess you can use a little bit of it for medical purposes and, and treating wounds, but overall it's mostly worthless. If you have the ability to build electronics in some way, you can use it for components of that. But overall, it's, it's, it's far less valuable than like a whole suite of fishing gear and you know some solar panels and some power tools. Uh, the solar panels do have some silver in them, so do the power tools, but you get my point, right? U.S. dollars? We can do it with a suitcase of $100 bills. $10 million worth of $100. $100 million of $100 bills on an island that you can't get off of. What's their intrinsic value? They're worth more as toilet paper or fire-starting material than they are as money. Unless you build up a sufficient economy and then you collectively agree to use them as money. And with that small number of people and that much bills, you know, your $100 bill is probably going to be worth a dollar because it's subjective. Subjective infers it's not intrinsic. This is, this is hard to get because you, everything in society has been designed to teach you otherwise because this is a system of control. Let's think about what energy and money teach us about as a whole. How about durable materials? Durable materials are a store of value, as long as you have need of them or use for them, or you can send them to somebody else who, who will exchange something for them. If you have a steel container, say stainless steel or aluminum that won't rust, on that island it's extremely valuable. You can move water with it. You can move other materials with it. And it's not easy to create one because you can knock the top off coconut. But it's not as durable. Durable materials are embodied energy. A brick is embodied energy. One time, a long time ago, when I used to work with Val Ryazanov, Val is a uh, martial arts instructor. Uh, he's a former member of the Russian uh, judo, judo Olympic team. He was a, uh, a member of the KGB uh, after that. Incredible martial artist. And one of the students at a thing that we were working with that was really proud of the ability that this guy could break boards and bricks and shit like that, said to Val, well, if, if what you do is so powerful, can you break this brick? And Val looked at him and said, why would one human being expend so much energy to destroy a thing that another human being put so much energy in so that a third human being could have a house? Val understood the value of that brick was in its embodied energy. That once it was broken, it was ruined. Why would you ruin it? To prove that you're strong? 
This is insane. You want to know that you you want to know what it's like? I'll hit you. That's what he told the guy. He said, I can hit you in the stomach. Then you'll know. You won't have to watch me break a brick that should be building somebody a house. That is the concept that there's value in durable goods. How about fuel energy? When we buy a gallon of gas, we're not buying a gallon of gas. I mean, we are, but we're not. What are we really squaring the deal over? We're squaring the deal over the fact that this gallon of, of energy will do work for me. It will move my giant metal apparatus we call a car, so you know, 22 miles. It will get me to work. It will get me home. It will take me out to the bar. It will take me for a ride. It will take me out hunting. It will move shit around my farm. That's what we're paying for. We're paying for the energy that comes out of it. What about our health? Healthcare, healthcare. What are we paying for? The ability to use our bodies. The ability to have quality of life. It all, it all stems from energy. Food. Food is energy. We, the unit we use to measure food is energy. The caloric value is literally a measure of energy. If I set this on fire, how much heat will come out of it? That's what a calorie is measured by. So food is an embodiment of energy. Transportation. I already talked about fuel, but you know, transportation, let's say it's it's using, you know, not fuel. I don't know, it's an electric train. It runs on solar panels. They actually figured out how to do it. You're still looking at the value is in the energy, the ability to move you. And that makes monetary creation manipulation and movement. That's what it really is. The manipulation of movement in many ways. If you can take control of the ability to create money, you can manipulate everything that humans need and value. This is why it's too much power for an entity in and of itself to have with a monopoly. That's what the Federal Reserve is. That's what every central bank is. The entity with the greatest power in the United States is not the President of the United States. It's not the United States Congress. It's not Jeff Bezos. It's the international banking cartel that we call the Federal Reserve. There's a private institution that creates money at will and moves that money through its own system thereby not only having access to the ledger, but control of the ledger. And the ability to influence the collective agreement to the point of mass delusion that these people can just type numbers into a keyboard at this point and make more money. Let's talk about how money is created and why it works. Because when you hear how it works, if you've never heard this before, it seems insane. It seems flat on its face insane, and in a way it is. So money is created. Let's not even talk about how money is created at the top level. Let's talk about one level down. Because we have a system called fractional reserve banking. And that means that not only can the Federal Reserve, the banking cartel at the highest level, print money, but every single bank in this country has the ability to, on demand, print money against your energy. When you go get a loan from a bank... What you've been taught by the system that lies to you is they loaned you money they had and you pay it back plus interest. Okay, there's a problem. They didn't loan you money they had. They loaned you money that you, they didn't have. They loaned you money they did not have. People 
in general, I think at least semi-informed people are familiar with what we call the 10% reserve requirement. So what people think that means is if a bank has a million dollars, they can loan out nine million of it and hold 10% or you know, 900,000 and hold $10,000 in reserve. That's what they think it means. So you would be loaning money you had. So what they're saying is, you know, Bank of Jack, your little bank, you're worth 10 million bucks. You can loan out nine million dollars. You hold a million dollars in reserve to account for failure to pay. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. That would mean I have to have the money to write you the check to buy your house with, right? If you go to your Uncle Bob and you don't want to use a regular bank, you say, Uncle Bob, I know you did really, really well financially. I need to buy a house for $150,000. What if we make a contract and I'll pay you the same as if I were borrowing the money from a bank? If Uncle Bob's smart, you know what he's going to say? It's not enough money. You're going to say, what? He, Uncle Bob is going to say, you know, banks right now are getting like two and three quarter, three percent. You want me to tie up $150,000 for 30 years for 3%. If he has the money, right, he can do much better than 3% on his money. He's losing money. He's going negative hard. Good financial management, over time you should be able to aggregate average 10%. Why would you tie up your money for your nephew at 3% when he can go to the bank and get the money at 3%? You don't only do it if you're benevolent and he can't get the loan and you trust him and you have the house as collateral. Right? So why would the bank do it? Why would the bank tender the consideration of $150,000 for only two and three quarter percent to three percent interest? Or even five or seven? You know what? Mortgage rates were seven percent. It was considered high. It's still a shitty return. You're, I'm going to tie my money up for 30 years. For 7%, and there's a chance you won't pay me back, and I'll have to go through the shit of evicting you, foreclosing on your house, and selling it, hoping I have enough to square the deal at the end of the day. Why would I do that for 3% on my money? That doesn't even make any sense. It does if I can make 3% on money that I never had in the first place. Ah, how much money would you loan out at 3% if you didn't have to have the money to loan the money? And the answer is all of it. And that's what they do. When, 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 when you go to the bank, so you come to the Bank of Jack, and Bank of Jack is actually a bank. I'm part of this cartel. You say, Bank of Jack, I want to borrow $200,000 to buy my dream home. And I say, okay, let's get an appraisal on your house. Let's get an inspection. Let's make sure the property's clear, all that shit, right? And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll loan you $200,000 at 3% interest for 30 years. You say, okay, you sign a contract. I do not take $200,000 out of my bank and give it to you. I create it by issuing a check against which there is no balance to draw from. I legally print money out of thin air, and I do that based on your promise to pay me back. Your energy flowing into me allows me to fire up my own little mini printing press and print $200,000. And all I have to have is... To a 10% reserve or $20,000 on hand of other money to do that with. It's the reverse of what people think. Now, where this, and, and at the top level, they do the same thing at a national level. The government wants money. The government doesn't have the money. The Federal Reserve does the same thing. They issue money on the promise of the government to repay the money back to them. 
That's how the debt grows. It's one way the debt grows. That's what, when, so it's basically when they say the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resort, that's what they mean. When nobody will buy a bond, the Federal Reserve buys the bond with nothing. I, I couldn't make it up if I tried, guys. So we think of this as inflation, but it's only half the story. We think of when we print money and there's more money competing for the same amount of goods, that's inflation. It is, but if everybody continues to believe the money is worth what they say it is, prices may go up a degree or two, but overall it's still pretty stable. And that's the job the Federal Reserve has done fairly okay at since 1913. Now you might think it's a horrible job, but it's their stated goal. Their stated goal is somewhere between 2% to 4% inflation per annum. That's their goal, and they've done pretty well at it. They've mostly made it work because the, because the agreement collectively has stayed in place. What really causes inflation, though, is not just more money. Look how much money was printed in 2020 for the stimulus and to save us and the COVID relief and all that. Where's the inflation? I know there's some, but where's, where, I mean, if you would have told somebody the amount of money that would just be dumped into the economy, they would have predicted gloom and doom. And I said, when it happened, it's not coming. It's not coming. First of all, you have a massive amount of debt, and when you dump a big dump truck of dirt into a hole, if the hole's bigger than the, than the cargo of the dump truck, you don't get a pile. If the dump truck is capable of filling the hole and then some, you get a small pile, not a big one. When you have a giant freaking strip mine hole, you can dump a lot of dump trucks in it before it fills up. That was part of it. But the other part of it is what happens to money in an economy like this. It is accumulated by the top two-tenths of a percent. Not the top two percent. The top two-tenths of a percent accumulate the majority of the money. So it was pulled out of the economy and it was accumulated. What causes hyperinflation is when you have a combination of money being printed along with what's known as the velocity of money. That's how fast the money moves and multiplies in the economy. So when an economy really heats up and they start doing lots of loans at banks, each one of those mortgages is $200,000, dollars $500,000 in real money, and it starts to add up, and now you get that money in circulation. You could print. A hundred kajillion, bazillion, gajillion, gajillion, billion dollars. Yeah, right? Dr. Evil style. Tomorrow morning. And if you put it all in a, a single account and you didn't spend any of it, it would have no effect on the economy at all. None. It wouldn't matter. Put the M3 up to a hundred gajillion dollars. It only matters how much is in the economy circulating. That's what fuels inflation. And when it gets overfueled and the confidence begins to wane, that's when you head toward money failures. And this is why basically anyone, anywhere, can create money. But not all money works or is accepted or is agreed upon. Think about, we talked about a deserted island. There are islands in the Pacific that aren't deserted. There's tribes that have lived there for millennia. Some of these tribes use great big giant stones, for some reason with a hole in them. I guess that's so you just can't go roll another stone up into the pile. There has to be some energy expended. And these stones represent money in their world, in their economy, for whatever they choose to exchange. No one takes their stone home. There's no banks. And this works. Believe it or not, it works. 
All the stones are like in the center of the village. And everybody just knows who owns what stone. And when I trade my stone to you, everybody just knows that. It's a ledger. Nothing moves. Nobody writes it down. Just since we're in a small community, 200 people or less, in a community of 200 people or less, you can generally know everybody in the community. So when you have a tribal unit that's about 200 strong, we just all know each other. And we can even trade with another tribe on the other side of the island, and we just say, well, that now belongs to you. That stone is your stone. We all know it. It requires a lot of trust, but it works. This is why you can create a cryptocurrency. If it does what it's supposed to do, and then if it's accepted, it becomes valuable. But it's also why we can create them and they fail. They never take off. They never develop any traction. You know, Can you get it listed in an exchange? Will people value it? Will people buy it? How many units did you print? The thing about cryptocurrency is you have to publish all the data because that's what the first person did. It has to be auditable. People have to understand, well, how many? How fast? How long? Do you have a halving? How often is that? Is there a burn rate? Because some cryptocurrencies, they can make a lot, but then some of it gets burned. How does it get burned? Who decides? All of these things factor into the one most important thing. How many people collectively agree that this thing can be used as a ledger of accounting between us and our acts of commerce with each other? It's so important you understand that every form of money is nothing but a ledger of accounting. Think about a tally stick. You ever heard of tally stick? You know what a tally stick was? So this was medieval England. You'd have a stick that was made from one piece of wood. One piece of wood, but it was cut into two pieces, and it would fit together like a puzzle. And depending on how long it was and how many notches in it would determine its value. And the lord of the manor or whatever, or the banker or the king or the noble, whatever, would keep one side of the stick, and then the other side of the stick would be given in return for something. Work, materials, whatever. And then that stick could be toddled around and used and exchanged over and over again. Because if it ever got to the point where somebody wanted to kind of cash it in, It was marked with where it went back to, who was holding the other side. And when it was brought in, if the two pieces fit, there was gold or silver or a grain bill or something attached to it that gave it exchangeable value. And since you, it's a lot like cryptocurrency, a public and a private key, right? The Lord held the private key, the noble hold the private key, and you held the public key. Now, what was to prevent you from making your own stick putting a false mark on it and counterfeiting it. Well, one of the things would be you know, being hung from a tree, having your guts pulled out, something like that, because the state would enforce that. The other would be that if you got caught doing that, that might happen to you without the state because your neighbor might just, I don't know, throw you off a cliff because you're a scumbag. But if you compare that, again, back to cryptocurrency, it is audible auditable, right? It's a much it's a superior form of a ledger. I complete, you know, when when Vin says it's a ledger, I completely agree, and it's definitely a superior ledger. But in the end, all you're talking about is how do you make sure that that both sides are accounted for without counterfeiting. So tally sticks worked. There are islands where seashells have been used as money. 
Because it doesn't, yes, you can go get more seashells. But when you don't live in a world where possessions are everything, then there's an understanding. These shells are money. Maybe they are marked by the chief or something. Maybe not. It depends. But it's just simply, an, it's just, it, it's, it, it's a, it's an abacus. Where the beads come off the abacus. It balances the equation. It accounts for the exchange. That's all money is. And what this did, and this is like, this is the whole point of today's episode. It created two things in the world. It first created freedom, like there had never been before. And then it created slavery, like there had never been before. And the reason it created freedom was it gave societies the ability to become specialists. Or even if they weren't a specialist, to spend the majority of time doing the thing that they wanted to do. So if we think of tribal society before the invention of money, before we had enough commerce going on, and if I was really gifted at flint napping, and I made great knives and great spearheads and great arrowheads as a flint napper, I still had to re really remain a generalist. Because at some point, you know, if we have a small tribal unit, 50 people, everybody has a knife. Everybody has spearheads. Everybody has arrow points. And frankly, everybody in that society, to one degree or another, is probably proficient at that as generalists themselves. I might make the best ones. But there's a point where I don't need what's best. I just need to stab this fish in the head and eat it. And I can do that with a sharp stick. I don't even need your arrowhead. Eh, I need your knife to fillet the fish because I've learned to do that maybe or to gut the fish or to skin the animal. However, I have one of your knives. I don't need any more. So you need to get out there and hunt and gather and build huts and do whatever. If I'm a gifted builder, I might be the guy that's kind of in charge when we build a new hut, but everybody's out there building the huts. There's no hut ink, right? So even though maybe that's what I love more than anything else, or I love plants, And I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, the hunter-gatherer that starts to make the connection that this plant grows in the same place every year, but it dies. This thing that comes out of it is a seed. And if I take this seed and put it somewhere else, this plant will grow. And maybe I love that. And any, you just think about if you, if you could have your dream job, what would it be? And the only reason that you can even fantasize about that, where you could do this one thing or these two or three things and provide everything else that you need from it is because of money. You could say it's because of barter, but we've already discussed how inefficient barter is without a ledger attached to it. That's what, if you really want to simplify it, money is a ledger attached to barter. Now, how did it create, how can something create so much freedom, create total subject level slavery? Because now, now you give up your generalist capabilities, you stop relying on barter, and as this expands, money can now engage in international, global commerce, and now we can quantify value, we can take that which was incredibly subjective, is it really more valuable that you can build a house than I can build a knife? Well, now it is. You get paid more to build a house than I do to get a knife. 
And now we can quantify this, and then we can add the biggest enslaver of mankind in history and also is the thing that created the most ability for us to survive, agriculture in its modern form of field culture, which is what agriculture means. And we start the culture of not only annual plants, which is incredibly destructive, but annual, durable, storable plants, grains and legumes primarily. Now we can take the king, can take all the grain and put it in storage and parcel it out and issue money against it. Now we can control the food supply. Now we can control freedom of movement. Now we have a place to take this person and make them work as a slave. Is it, did, did, it ever, did you ever really stop and think about the primary uses of slave labor? The number one use of slave labor was the production of food, and the number two was the construction of infrastructure so that that things, primarily food, could be moved. So the main thing's done with slaves. Certainly in the United States, it was all agriculture. Agriculture and servants in the home. And that was a matter of convenience. Like, you, you know that when this started, it was all about work the fields, and then you got some people that maybe they can't work the fields real well, but they still have value to me, so, you know, I could bring this person in and make them a house slave. Oh, and look, now they'll clean my... My, uh, you know, my shitter, which is a really nasty job before there was plumbing, right? So yeah, this is this makes sense to me as a slave owner. That was the mentality. But the primary mechanism of enslavement went right along with agriculture, right along with it, and it created slavery in many ways. It created the classic form of slavery we've been talking about up till now, but it created a much more insidious and much more powerful twin form of slavery, twins of slavery, I should call them. Debt and taxation. Debt and taxation are forms of slavery. One is voluntary and one is involuntary. Debt is a voluntary form of servitude. One chooses to go into debt. How many people came to the new world because they were debt prisoners? The entire state of Georgia was founded on debt prisoners. These people were in debt. They couldn't pay their debts. They were thrown in prison. That doesn't do you a lot of good if you're the guy that owned the money. But there's this place you can send them to. They cut down trees, and those trees get sold to the crown for their ships. It's one of the main sources of income from the colonies when they started. Everybody needed more ships, and they cut down all the freaking timber in, in Europe. And what was left was being very, very closely guarded. You could only cut so much, but it takes a long time to grow a single tree to the size of a ship's mast let alone all the wood to make the ship, because that's what they made ships out of back then. But boy, there's this whole new world where there's just tons of these straight, tall, freaking trees. You can send this person over there, cut them down, and when they cut enough trees down for long enough to pay their debt, they could have freedom. This was indentured servitude. And when we first started colonizing the new world we being Europeans in general. There was no permanent slavery here. I won't get into that story today, but the first permanent slave owner officially sanctioned by law in the New World was a black man owning another black man. That's a true story. You can look it up if you doubt me. But money created that capability. Without money, you don't get any of this. And the pursuit of money, the pursuit of money, you know they say the love of money is the root of all evil, right? 
And people change it to money is the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money. Don't, Voltaire, don't think money does everything or you're going to end up doing everything for money. So you can lure people into voluntary servitude through debt. And then governments were able to just say, you know what? This slavery thing works out pretty well, but 100% ownership of individuals is complicated. I have to feed them. I have to shelter them. I have to clothe them. Sure, I can treat them like shit, but any good farmer knows if you treat your animals like shit, they die and it costs you money. You have to actually take, even if you are, you know, even if you're running a CAFO, you have to take some level of reasonable care of your animals. And don't think I look at people as animals, but the state does. The whole book about it. Animal farm, right? <laughs> and so, so the state looks at this and goes, you know what? Fractional slavery. That's the ticket. That's the ticket. I'll make this person 20% my slave. They get to keep 80% of what they make, but I don't pay them. That market thing will take care of that shit. We don't have to understand it to understand that we can harvest it. I don't have to understand how a field grows to be able to harvest it. I have to understand how it grows to plant it. We'll let the, the farmers plant the field, and we'll just harvest a piece of it. We'll take it for ourselves. And then it was like, you know what? Taxing this whole trade thing is great. But what we should really be taxing as things progressed is income. We should tax trade. And that was almost all the taxation at the time of the American Revolution was a tax on trade. You didn't go to work for Bill and Bill paid you a check and the government took some of it. That's an income tax. No, Bill paid you. And then you went to buy something, and they levied a tax on the commodity. And they said, not only is there a tax, let's say, on tea, but you will freaking buy our tea, and you will pay our tax on it. And that was enough for us to, like, tar and feather people and fight a, a revolution for it. And it's a fraction of what they do to you today. Because that was the next idea. Hey, you know what? If we can tax commerce, why can't we tax income? And then... If we can tax commerce and income, some bitch, why don't we tax property, which is the most insidious tax? We'll charge a person a fee to own their own piece of land. And we'll tax the single greatest reserve of wealth in the world. And if they don't pay, we'll just take their land. And somebody else will give us money for it, and then they'll pay us. This is how money created a world of servitude in slavery. But why? Because there's a monopoly until recently on the creation and the regulation of money. And that's what makes crypto so strong. It's impossible to fully regulate. It's impossible to control. And every time they think they're catching up, the... the The technology race will never be won by the state here because they're always going to be in a reactionary mode. They're always going to be reacting to the last development while the next development's already being rolled out. I mean, what I just heard about this thing called Strike yesterday, holy shit, I think it's called Strike. I'm going to have to look it up. I haven't, I just listened, I was working in my shop and it just, it was the next podcast in my feed and it just started. But, I mean, it's going to put ATMs out of business is what it sounds like. It might put PayPal out of business. I said strike, not stripe. It might put Visa out of business. Why the hell would I, if I can use any form of payment 
to make any other form of payment anywhere in the world almost instantly at any time of day from the comfort of my own home, why would I use Visa to make that payment other than I don't have the money? If I'm using Visa because I am borrowing money, that's one thing. But how, how much of the Visa network or the MasterCard network or the PayPal network today is money people have? They're just a network that allows the exchange to occur for a fee. But if you can pay me for MSB, and instead of paying about the $1.50 I pay, so if you pay me $50 for MSB, I get $48.50. PayPal gets about, it's really $1.44 if I remember right. But it adds to the thousands of dollars a year. If we have a mechanism where you can pay me, even in dollars, like I want Bitcoin, you want to pay in dollars. Okay, fine. You have Litecoin, and I need money this month that's in the form of fiat, so I want dollars. You can do that too. Why would we use PayPal? Why would we use PayPal? Why would we use Visa? Why would we use MasterCard? Why would we enrich the banks? And that's where I think that we're, we're entering a phase where it's going to be a really dangerous time because we're, we are literally ripping away that power from people who have used it for millennia. And this is why you have to be able to use this knowledge to your advantage. And it's not, that does not mean just go out and get in cryptocurrency. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the totality of the knowledge I'm giving you today. When you really understand this, you understand why I am so opposed to debt. Because I think it's a bad idea for you to put a chain around your own neck, lock it with a padlock, attach a ball to it, and burden yourself dragging that ball with you everywhere you go as a slave. I think it's a bad idea. And that's what debt is. That's what debt is. It is a ball and chain around your throat. Once you understand how this all works, you will see it that way. But you'll also understand what actually is happening when you do business with a counterparty. You'll actually understand that it's not about the money, it's about the exchange of value, and it changes the way you see other people, it changes the way you value other people, it changes what you value about what they offer you, and it leads to strong local economics. There is no reason that any neighborhood in America today can't roll out their own localized neighborhood currency that could be attached to a stable coin like Tether, a speculative coin like Bitcoin in some way, shape, or form to where it became fungible outside of the neighborhood, but there was not a lot of incentive to spend it outside of the neighborhood. In, in a lot of ways, it's what Xavier Hawk's working on with Firon. Will he pull it off? I don't know. It seems like he's on the right track, though. But there's no reason that if 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 that just was not something that people could mentally get their head around, that they couldn't just pick a cryptocurrency as the official neighborhood or town or whatever currency. And again, it could be a stable coin if people did not like the speculative nature of things. It could be a basket of currencies. Because I talked about this as a virtual nation. It works in the real world, too. What if you created a local currency... And for every one unit of that, there was X amount of these other three mainstream, like Litecoin, Bitcoin, Ethereum, on the back end of it. And that was held as a reserve that was auditable that had, let's say, 20 people in town that all had to have consensus to take any of it out. So all 20 would have to be in on the scam to steal it, right? So that there was 
confidence in it because this other thing was behind. And some of that could be a stable coin. Maybe 10% of it is a stable coin. You take the, and, and how do you get this going? You allow people to buy the currency. And then you use the purchase of the value and the buying of the currency to put up the reserve. Basically, now you have a private local bank. Very simple. Beats the shit out of Ithaca hours, doesn't it? When you have this knowledge, you can start to understand how we can actually recreate the freedom that existed before money and retain the freedom that money brought to us by redesigning social constructs and relationships and voluntary exchange of value. And real value is the path of liberty. That's something else that we really need to understand. And that's why they don't teach you any of this. When you actually learn how to create value, you have more freedom than you can possibly have any other way. And this is why entrepreneurs have freedom. We create value. I, th I don't think all of us create value. I think some entrepreneurs are successful at creating the illusion of value. But most entrepreneurs, they do something of value. What I do every day has value or you wouldn't be listening to me. I mean, it is that simple, right? You're not listening to me because you're bored. Even if you're bored, if, if I'm not bringing you enough value, you go listen to something else or you go do something else. And that's why I'm sitting in my home office right now watching my fish swim around, the ones that are left after the big freeze. That's why when I get done with this, I'm going to go out my shop and do the stuff that I want to do. That's why a couple of months from now, I'm going to shut my business down for 10 days, but it's going to keep running. And I'm going to go to Florida and fish for sharks on the beach with my wife and my kid and my, my daughter-in-law and my grandkids. That's why I'm going to be able to do all that. And that's why I can do it whenever I want. And you can, if you're not an entrepreneur, you get to do it when the people you work for say you're allowed to. But if you take it to another level, to where you start to understand and you think the way that the farmers of the past in this country thought, and plenty of them still do, you just don't know who they are. There are farmers that can, you know that song by Montgomery Gentry, buy your car with $100 bills, buy your fancy car with $100 bills. They're there. They exist. I met a guy, pretty much farmer, hillbilly type guy, East Texas. He was a landholder that was leasing some folks I was hunting with the land so they could hunt on it. And this guy, if you ran into him on the street, you would think he was dead broke. And there's a law in the state of Texas, did you, if you have a certain amount of cash on hand, which I think is foolish because it can always be taken away from you in a minute domain, you don't even have to carry auto insurance. He's that guy. He has that. I don't need insurance. Yes, you do, sir. The law says, no, here's what the law says, and here's the money. That's because instead of thinking, I'm going to buy this piece of land and grow pine trees and sell them every 15 years, or I'm going to grow corn and sell it every year, or I'm going to grow soy and corn, or I'm going to grow wheat. The entrepreneurial farmer says, well, I'm going to grow some of that stuff because the government will pay me to grow it. I'm going to use government's money to put in USDA Code 600 agricultural terraces, which, because of Jack Spierko, I know are actually swales. I'm going to put in some little, little buildings over there. I'm going to put those on Airbnb. I'm going to put a little campground over here. I'm going to put that on Hip Camp. And, uh, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to talk to the guy down the road, and we're going to make a deal on this, and I'm going to make a deal on They're wheeler dealers. I met a guy up in Missouri, a farmer. He's basically building out his farm so that 
other farmers don't have to go anywhere else but there. You want your, your, your grain process, you'll be able to take it to him. Yeah. And, 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 and that mindset is how real value leads to liberty because the ability to do that has value. The ability to do that confers value. There's no subjectiveness. That's intrinsic value. I have this thing and I need this thing done to it. And instead of trucking it clear across the state, I can keep it local and do business with somebody I know and it'll get done. And I can pick the phone up and call him and say, what time is okay to do it? And he'll give me a time when I show up, it'll get done. That's intrinsic value. People use words like intrinsic value. They have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. You know, gold has intrinsic value. For what? It, it, for what? For the ring on my finger that symbolizes my marriage? That's the most intrinsically valuable piece of gold I've ever seen personally. And it, you know, it could be built out of steel and it would, it would symbolize the same thing. We have collectively decided that it has value. Collective agreement does not equal intrinsic. A tree is intrinsically valuable. It has value if, if I'm not there. I mean, think about it that way. What intrinsic value really means. I have this oak tree. It grows out in the middle of the wilderness. No human being has ever stepped foot on land close enough to observe that tree. There's no price on that tree. The, the, humanity's been wiped off the face of the earth. or We haven't arisen on the planet yet. There's no banking system. What's the What value does that tree have? It provides shade for animals. If it's a mass tree like an oak, it drops acorns that animals eat. It drops massive biomass that builds topsoil. Its roots go deep into the soil and form fast carbon pathways. It infiltrates water. It protects the ground. You see what I'm saying? Like we keep going here. This tree has incredible value. If we never saw it down, if we never turned it into timber... If it lives its whole life, rots and dies. As it rots and dies, it has intrinsic value. First, when it first dies and it becomes susceptible to things like woodpeckers, it's housing. As it rots more and termites invade it, it's food. As it begins to crumble and fall apart to the ground, it's nourishment and soil building. And when it finally dies and another tree takes its place and fills in the root space is in the ground, it is a path to a quicker new tree. And it doesn't give a shit if humanity exists at all. It confers that value. When you say intrinsic value, you're either talking about that, or you do, that word does not mean what you think it means. And you might be thinking, Jack, you basically just said that all money is worthless. It is and it isn't. And this is the real power of this knowledge. When you decide to hold a form of of money or investment. You need to understand that it is subject to the collective agreement and that that collective agreement can change and that subjectivity of that agreement changes its relative value. And I've never heard anybody explain that and get even close other than maybe John Pugliano. I'm talking investment advisors, PhDs in economics. I've never heard anybody explain it that way. That it's, see, that's when you hear these supposed experts and they're, they're shitting on something like a cryptocurrency and saying, well, it has no intrinsic worth. Neither does your money, asshole. 
But like I said already, like if you really want to look down to utility, I can make a case that there's greater utility in Litecoin or Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin. And you're talking about, this is really important to understand with cryptocurrency, you have the asset and you have the network. We can do things. Our privacy coin uses the Bitcoin network, but it's not Bitcoin. Strike, the thing I just told you about, right, uses the Bitcoin network. It can be used with Bitcoin, but it doesn't have to. It's the network. The utility of that network, all those computers out there that enable transactions across the globe in near real time for low to no fees, that has more utility than the U.S. dollar. I'm sorry, it does. That doesn't mean I'm going to turn down your U.S. dollars. It doesn't mean I'm going to turn down your gold. It doesn't mean I'm going to turn down your silver. And if I need the thing you're bartering, it doesn't mean I'm going to turn that down either. might even be interesting to have a great big stone with a hole in my backyard. But I know it will have no value here, but I just might like it. It might be a good story because it's subjective to me. There are things that I own that I spent real money on, right? If you want to call the dollar real money, that were rather expensive. And you would say, I don't, what, what the hell does he want that for? And there's things in your home that I would say the same thing about. You might come in my office and go, what the hell are you doing with these giant fish tanks? Those things cost money to run. A stupid fish doesn't feed you. What do you? I enjoy it. I like it. Subjective. Not intrinsic. Subjective. It's subjective. It is intrinsically valuable that, let's say, a 10-gallon tank can hold 10 gallons of water, but there's better ways to do it than glass. They're far more portable, far more durable. As every owner of aquariums finds out sooner or later, right, the hard way, that that's the key. Things leak, things crack, things break, things get broken. But intrinsic value, again, will have a value whether you are in an economy or not. Or it's not intrinsic. It's subjective. Gold is subjectively valued. Gold is subjectively valued. Gold hasn't even gone up in price. The value of the dollar has gone down against gold mostly is how that you can explain that. That's what's happening with cryptocurrency. The You have how many dollars in circulation? How many trillions of dollars? And like 18 million Bitcoin in circulation? It's not so much one going up. It's the value of the other declining against it because it's subjective. So what I really want you to understand today And take away from this is that everything in the world that we use as money is nothing but a ledger of accounting based on a collective agreement and that that collective agreement can change. It can either change subjectively in that it's now worth more or less or it can change completely in that this is now worth less. Not worth less, worth less. That's when you see a you know, currency just being laid in the streets in Venezuela right now or something like that, or Zimbabwe or Weimar Republic. That's, it wasn't they printed too much. It was people lost confidence in it. Now, they lost, now, don't get me wrong, they lost confidence because they printed too much. But in the end, it is the confidence. It is the collective agreement. And every investment you should make should ascertain the current collective agreement, the stability of the collective agreement, how that how that intersects all other collective agreements with other things that it can be exchanged or funged into, and what the future most likely holds for that. And as soon as you do that, you end up doing what as an investor? Diversifying. Not the way your financial liar tells you to diversify. Your financial liar says you are diversified because you're in small cap, 
mid-cap, growth in income, and some little bit of high-risk investments, and a little bit of a hedge with some bonds. No, you're not diversified at all. You have no diversity in that portfolio. Why? You are holding 100% of your money in United States dollars. How In paper instruments that represent United States dollars, how the hell is that diversity? Diversity is I've got some crypto, and I've got several different kinds that work on several different types of networks. I've got some silver. I've got some gold. I've got, yes, U.S. dollars. I, yes, I have stocks and commodities. Yes, I have some bonds. Right. I also have an incredible investment in my homestead, in intrinsically valued things, things that will produce for me even if money fails. Now I got diversity. They won't teach you this because they don't want you to do that. How easy am I to control by the government right now? How much control can the government exert in my life? Why do I not give a shit about so many things that many of you still care about? Because they don't affect me. I mean, I'll try to help you with them and all, but I don't sit around day to day worried about a lot of things that a lot of you worry about. Because I've separated myself in many ways from that system while still participating in it at my leisure and my choice where it's convenient for me. And I want you to do it too, and they don't want you to do it. You will never hear anything like I've said today taught in the schools in the United States of America. All the way from kindergarten to freaking advanced courses at Harvard. They will never teach this, and I defy you to prove it wrong. There's very few things I say like, this is, this is not my opinion, even though I'm the source of this information. This is fact. There's times I'll say it's fact, not my opinion, but it's somebody else's the source. I'm, I have never heard anybody explain this this way. Do you know why I'm convinced I'm right? Not because I thought of it and said, gee, you're a genius, Jack. No, because I, I came up with this whole theory, and then I do, I did to myself what I always do to myself when I come up with something like this. I moved to the other side of the table and said, I will destroy this argument. I will destroy my own argument. If you cannot subject your argument to your own attempt to destroy it, you have no confidence in it. And when I attempted to destroy my argument that money was nothing but a ledger of accounting based on a collective agreement and subjective value at the time, that core understanding, no one in the world will tell you that but me, that I know of right now anyway, and that I could be wrong about. Maybe somebody else said this somewhere. I've never seen anybody say it, and I'm always argued with when I say it, and no one can ever actually argue against it. They argue against the idea, but they don't argue against the fact. Arguing against an idea is not an argument. I, arguing against the facts presented. And I've tried. I've tried to destroy this definition of money. I've tried to destro destroy my worldview of money. I cannot do it. I can't. And I can't because it is fundamentally accurate. And I invite you, if you've been challenged by this, Go ahead. Don't tell me you're wrong because this book says so. Sit down and define by process how money's not a ledger of accounting that's subjective in value based on the collective agreement of the time. Go ahead. Good luck with it. <laughs> and once you understand it, instead of arguing against it, start figuring out how to harness it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And even though I kind of beat up on the American dollar, trust me, the American dollar is currently a reasonable ledger of accounting that has a large collective agreement and a decent subjective value. So I like to make some money at what I do, and I do like to make money in dollars. And uh, 
one of the ways you can help me out without actually sending me any money directly is just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you do that, you'll help us out no matter what you buy. And anything you see there reviewed, uh, you know I own it, I use it, I valued it, or I wouldn't recommend it to you. There's nothing on there that I don't own or haven't owned or wouldn't buy again. And if I find something that ends up having a problem, it doesn't usually happen, but if it does, I'll, I'll take it down and I'll make an announcement, hey, like, don't buy this thing anymore. I, or a lot of times it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. I found a better option. So here's the new option. If you look at some of my old recommendations, you'll see, like, I don't recommend this anymore because I found something better. Here it is. Here's a link. All right. Today, one of my favorite value companies is a company called Anchor. Anchor is in the electronics, consumer electronics level stuff, backup power, charging cables, music, things like that. And the reason I value them so much is, number one, I have yet to buy anything that didn't work as advertised, which in the world of all these Chinese chop shops, that's, uh, that's, something, that's something in of itself. But here's the other reason. I've actually had one product from Anchor arrive DOA. It didn't work. And when I got in touch with their customer service, they, and I said, I, I mean, I'm going to have to return this. I just want to make sure that I'm not doing something wrong with it. Just, just keep it. We'll send you another one. We're sorry. Man, in 2021, that is the kind of company that I want to do business with. Because as much as I'm on local business, let me tell you what, there's nobody local making to me, making for me. I, can, I can't go somewhere locally and buy this thing that was made here in America or especially here in North, Northeast Texas, right? Uh, the Anchor Soundcore 2 Portable Bluetooth Speaker. Uh, this is a great little speaker. It's durable as shit. My wife put one on the hood of the car, forgot about it, drove away. It fell off, and she ran over it, and it still works. I don't recommend you do that, but that's, that says something in of itself. You can also get two of these, and you can pair them together, and then you have stereo sound. I use this for stereo sound out in my shop. My back shop, I have a really high-end stereo system in my front shop. I put in for, you know, for when we do classes and everything. So you get to play music on it, and the TV can go on it and all that. But I wanted to be able to play nice music out in my out shop. So when I saw these, I'm like, I'm not putting any real money into it. These things are like 30 bucks a piece. I bought two of them. They pair together. I take them out there and set them up. I do my work. When I come in, they go wherever I go. They're also IPX7 waterproof. That means they can be submerged in water. So when I have one sitting on the side of the pool and a dog kicks it in, and it's happened, hasn't it, Charlie, as I reach down and pet them here, um, it's, it works. They're on sale today for 25% off. Here's the other thing, though. I love Anchor. Anchor has about half of everything they make on sale today on limited time deals. So there's a link in the write-up as well where not only you can see the speaker, but it's just basically everything Anchor. So if you need anything kind of in this world, I cannot recommend them highly enough. And again, if you use tspaz.com, you help us out no matter what you buy. The other way, become a member. I believe in value for value. You become a member, 50 bucks a year, you use my discounts that I've negotiated for you, you get your money back, and then some. I just heard from somebody yesterday. They're a market gardener. They just put their annual order in with high mowing seeds, and now they're a market gardener, so they buy a lot. They've said that one order every year pays for their membership, and everything else is gravy. That's value for value. You can become a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. And yes, I do take cryptocurrency. I also take silver. I take silver. You know what has happened since cryptocurrency really kind of caught on? I get almost no silver anymore. Maybe it's because cryptocurrency is a better form of money. I don't know. Anyway, with that, let's wrap things up with our song of the day today. This is a song when I saw the title of it, I'm like, I don't understand how I don't know this song because it's by Huey Lewis in the News. You know, and as a guy that grew up in the 70s and 80s, 
I mean, Huey Lewis, come on. Power of love, right? You know, want a new drug, etc. Jacob's Ladder. And I was like, I, I don't know this song. And then I listened to it. I go, of course I know this song. I just, somewhere the brain cell with the title of it went away. Step by step, right? Um, but what I love about this song, and, you know, I was, I was kind of looking at the lyrics today, is right in the beginning. So what this song's about is basically uh, a fat man trying to lure a dancer in, but not in the way you might think when I just say it that way. It's really kind of like crapping all over televangelists, trying to sell spiritualism in the name of, of preaching God's word. And we all know there are some of those smiley guys on TV that fit that perfectly, given it was... Put out in 1986, if you're from that time. you can. There's nobody particularly named, but I bet you we know what fat man it was, don't we there, uh, Mr. Baker? But this one line, there's so much wisdom in it. All I want from tomorrow is to get it better than today. All I want from tomorrow is to make it better than today. Let me tell you something. You could live your whole life with that one rule and have a fantastic life. Because what we work at, we get better at. Plain and simple. If every day you try to carve a piece of wood, no matter how shitty you are at carving wood, you'll get better at it. If every day you work at making today a little bit better than you were off yesterday, you'll get better at it. And therefore, every day can get a little bit better. Even if you only pull it off, you know, let's say five out of ten days, you stay par the other five and you get a little bit better Five. Imagine what that does in your life over 10 years. It's why I talk about money and winning with money. If you focus on how to control money instead of how money controls you, you get better at controlling money. Money is actually really simple. Since it's a symbol for energy, it obeys the laws of energy. And that's why I say to a lot of people when they have bad monetary practices, bad marketing practices, why do you hate money? Why do you hate money? And then I'll also say, if you hate money, money will hate you back. So if we work on making today a little better than yesterday, including the part of it that involves money, we build success, we build stability, we build non-brittleness, and we build real wealth. And you reach a point in your life where you realize you've truly become wealthy, and you realize only a small portion of that wealth is held in dollars because all you've ever wanted from tomorrow was to get it a little bit better than today. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. I'm doing all right, the best that I can.